You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. I'm Sean Stevens, and today we have our second interview with Dr. Justin Coleman, medical writer, editor, blogger, GP, fellow podcaster and drug company skeptic. Today's interview is on Justin's impressions of drug companies and of their influence of GPs in particular. Welcome, oh, Justin. Thank you for having me back, Sean. Okay, so Justin, what is it that fueled your interest in drug company influence? Look, I've always been a bit of a um, an advertising sceptic, I think, Sean. Even when I was a teenager, I used to look at ads and sort of think it was odd that they expected to work on the viewer of the ad. But uh, they clearly do. So I used to, I remember looking at Coke ads and you'd have all those thin, attractive healthy-looking people and the yeah. concept is for the company, you know, to associate their sugared drinks with thin, good-looking people. Uh, I remember yeah, those ads, yes. Well, it etched into the teenage mind, I think. But the, the funny thing is, I mean, even though I was sceptical about them, they still worked. I mean, I don't walk into a pub and sort of ask for something in cola. You tend to ask for something in Coke. So, I mean, it, it is in the back of your mind, even though you don't particularly believe the advertising. But then when I became a doctor, um, as a registrar, I I spent my whole registrar training in Tennant Creek. Yep, I remember it well. I was there as a oh, medical student. Right? Okay, so I was at Anani Congress, the uh, Aboriginal Health Service there. And Tennant Creek, for those who don't know, is about as far away from a drug representative as it is possible to be in Australia. And I think in my two years' time there, one dental rep came through largely because he was driving through anyway. Uh, and so I got back to civilization after that and really yeah, you don't need to see drug reps and I didn't see the advantage of seeing them. And then I used to write about it a bit and seven years ago I was asked to join a body called the Medicine Australia, a transparency working group. Um, Ken Harvey and Ray Moynihan invited me on board and it was there that I started looking, interacting with the pharmaceutical industry itself, trying to do some self-regulation and it yeah, the process, it was, there were good people there, but it was a bit disheartening in the sense that I realised the mountains we were up against and I felt yeah. really I probably didn't make all that much difference in the end uh, in that group. Yeah. And you've been very active in that space and very vocal about these issues. Um, you launched the No Advertising Please campaign at GP14 in Adelaide. Can you please tell our listeners a bit about that? Yeah, well, that came out of the fact that I would uh, I felt the top-down regulatory approach, while it was the most important approach and probably the most effective if it works, but it was also something I had little influence over. So I was on this working group and in the end I felt our, the things we discussed weren't taken all that seriously by the industry. And so then I thought, oh, maybe I'll try a different approach and appeal from the ground up, as it were, so looking at doctors themselves. So looking at prescribers and just trying to convince prescribers that the evidence showed that it isn't particularly useful seeing pharmaceutical representatives. And, you know, when I'd gone through medicine and before I went to Tinder Creek, no one had ever suggested to me at any point in my career that that there was anything else besides seeing pharmaceutical reps. So I'd never met a GP who hadn't, who didn't see the reps. 
and the ones who did never really described it as being a bad thing or even having any good or bad component to it. It's just what you did. And I figured that I wanted the next generation of registrars in particular to grow up at least hearing that there's there are arguments against seeing drug reps and that, that a lot of doctors don't see drug reps because since then I've discovered that there were a lot of doctors already that didn't see them, but they no one ever really talked about it as an issue. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because your information and your program actually has influenced me personally. I no longer go to drug company lunches or dinners. It is. I think it has been an influential program. It's probably the starting of a um, a groundswell. Oh, thanks, Sean. Well, it's good to hear. Yeah. So in the end, it was it, the approach was really an educational one for prescribers for GPs. So we weren't arguing that there shouldn't be any such thing as drug reps or that there should be any restrictions placed on them above what are already. So we weren't arguing for any sort of regulation or rule based approach. Just an information giving approach. So basically, giving doctors like yourselves, the idea of what's out, what evidence is out there and uh, and the fact that it's perfectly normal and fine to not go to these events. Well, you mentioned the evidence. You're an academic GP. What is the evidence about seeing drug reps? So there was a study done by a, a friend and colleague of mine and amongst various other people around the world, but uh, Jeff Sperling did. Uh, so it it's still remains the biggest systematic review of influence of pharmaceutical uh, representatives on prescribers. Uh, so it's a systematic review around the world of every study available. And the evidence is fairly clear. According to how many drug reps you see, and you can divide it into, you know, people who see them lots and a bit and, and not at all, that influences three things essentially. So it influences the number of medications you prescribe. So generally you prescribe more if you see more reps. It influences the expense of those medications. So again, uh, mm. you prescribe more expensively, which isn't surprising because the reps aren't out there hocking two-cent aspirin tablets. And thirdly, uh, prescribe less according to guidelines. So you, the doctors who see a high number of reps tend to uh, not uh, use necessarily the best independent evidence and guidelines, but more according to what rep has been there recently. Well, one of the things people often mention, and, and I guess it's getting people started on it, is drug samples. Is there any evidence around that of the value of it? Because, you know, they are very useful to patients. Well, drug samples are arguably useful to patients. I think doctors tend to value them more highly than is actually the case. So there's a few things with samples. So there's studies where, for example, if uh, they've asked groups of doctors what GPs what if you had your choice of five or six different drugs you'd have in your cupboard or 10, what would they be? And I think there was only a 4% correlation with the drugs that were actually in their cupboards. So in other words, the, the drug samples you get tend to be, you know, they're, they're always more expensive. You know, the combination drugs have been the recent ones, but it, it yeah. does tend to be what drug groups visited yeah. recently. Now, of course, drug samples, you could argue, save money. Well, do they really? It probably costs the company actually more money to produce a box of drug samples samples and it does a regular box just because of volume and so someone's paying for it and in the end 
ends up being the, the taxpayer and the consumer who pays for it. So you, this impression that you're giving a freebie to your patient, but in the end, it, it tends to be a short-term dose of something which isn't necessarily the best thing for your patient, but is okay and it'll do. And of course, once you're on these pills, which, you know, say a dollar a day for the next rest of their life or the next 10 years, you give the first uh, first month or whatever as a drug sample. And from then on, it's an absolutely huge market, which is captured by the pharmaceutical company. Yeah, a good point. People often criticize complementary therapies and they say, well, look, at least pharmaceuticals are tightly regulated, but complementary therapies are allowed to get away with too much latitude. What's your thoughts on that? I think that's true. And I I think uh, just because I spend my time arguing, you know, trying to improve the pharmaceutical industry doesn't mean I do nothing for the complementary one as well. So I think, you know, I'm on the, um, I just recently wrote the RACGP submission to the Therapeutic Goods Advertising Code, which is arguing that the therapeutic claims made by, you know, herbal remedies and complementary remedies should be more tightly regulated. At the moment, it's uh, it's very loose. And as long as you put the word may in, you can say this may help virtually anything. There are very few cases where that when complaints are made, in fact, uh, it, most of them are upheld as in they're, they're claiming things that simply have absolutely no evidence. But it's a very reactionary system at the moment where someone has to actively make a complaint for it to become to the attention of the authorities. So at the moment, you can marketing a therapeutic claim for, you know, your water tablet or what tablet or whatever you like, you honestly can virtually say anything and that there's some fairly outrageous claims made at the moment. So I think it's very important to regulate that. Yeah, clearly something that does need mm. regulation. All right. What about GPs who say that they can attend drug company events and just see through the spin and not let it influence them? Yeah. Yeah, look, that's very interesting. Certainly, you know, I had much argy-bargy between uh, doctors when we came out with the no advertising please thing, and that was what they said. Some responses, of course, said, uh, you know, doctors said, bugger off, I like my sandwiches and enjoy the banter with the reps. And in some ways that that's fine. I mean, that's an honest response. I think, you know, the evidence does show that some people are worse off for it. I think patients generally are worse off and, and certainly the uh, health dollar is worse off because you end up prescribing more and more expensive things. But, but at least it's an honest response. It's uh, interestingly, this very common response you mentioned is that, you know, I can see through the spin. I'm not fooled for an instant. I can pick the magic. There was a great study by a fellow called Steinman who interviewed 100 doctors on how much they thought pharmaceutical reps influenced their prescribing. And only 1% of those doctors, so one out of the 100, agreed that drug companies had a big effect on their own prescribing. But then Steinman then asked these same doctors how much influence they thought reps had on other doctors and 51% believe they had a big influence on other doctors. They affect others, Exactly. It's this great sort of example of I think it's cognitive dissonance where you're logically, you agree because we're smart people, we know that pharmaceutical reps must have a big influence on other people or else the billions of dollars spent on the rep industry wouldn't work and, and pharmaceutical companies wouldn't be able to justify it to their shareholders. So on the other hand, you think that they can't possibly be influencing me because I'm very clever. So therefore, you have this huge dissonance that, yeah, they're influencing everyone else but not me. Well, what about GPs who say, well, look, this is actually a good way to get information about new drugs? 
Yeah, look, that's another argument. And in fact, if you if you do go to the uh, website at some time, no advertising, please. We we cover a lot of these questions, sort of the twelve most common questions. But for that one, look, there's a couple of things here. One is that in this information age, with free access on the internet to so much fantastic information uh, from independent sources or relatively independent. I mean, nothing's truly independent, but you know, things like NPS Medicine Wires and and various other excellent resources. There's really very little excuse, I think, to say that the only way I can find out about a new drug is to have the rep come and visit. Whereas that might have been the case 30 years ago. It just simply is not the case now. In fact, we have doesn't hold well, we just have, yeah. we have far more information than we could possibly use. And so it's a question, it becomes a question then of not where do I get the information? It's more I have an X amount of time to learn about pharmaceuticals and, and how to prescribe them. Where am I going to spend that time? And our argument is there's far mm. better places to spend and have a marketer come to your door. Fair enough. Now, I'm old enough to remember the marketing and promotion of drugs like Vioxx and Rosiglitazone. These took quite a while for the negative effects to come to light and, you know, patients died because of these. To what extent do you think the drug companies played a role in these scandals? Well, I mean, the, the US courts would argue, uh, given they were the biggest corporate fires in history, that they played uh, a central and intrinsic role. But look, it's interesting. I mean, no, no one goes, no, no drug rep goes into the industry thinking, I, I want to harm people or uh, not good things no, yeah not, of course uh, not. and in fact you know so the industry aim they say we want the right drug for the right person at the right time and in many ways that is certainly true i mean a car salesman wants the right car for the right person at the right time you know a happy customer with no car troubles they want the entire system to run smoothly for everyone but you just have to realise that's not to the point of curtailing sales. So if, if you look at pharmaceutical marketing, it clearly wants the right people to be on their drug that works, and that's great. But you then analyse the marketing. It frequently aims to persuade doctors to prescribe drugs when no drug is indicated, so over-prescribing, or prescribe high-cost drugs when lower-cost drugs would be equally effective or to prescribe the wrong category of a drug. So clearly there's more to it than just wanting the best outcome for patients and um, not that they ever want a, a negative outcome for patients. Pharmaceutical companies loathe the potential for dangerous side effects in their drug every bit as much as doctors and patients. No one wants to sell a lemon. But, you know, the problem, Sean, arises when the, your drug works but has a bit too much of a lemony taste to be palatable, I guess. So there the aims differ because the aim of doctors and patients is to find out as much about side effects or problems as possible, as early as possible, and to have everything scientific and transparent and out on the table. But that aim is absolutely and distinctly different from the aim of the manufacturer. You know, if you look at rosiglitazone, which you mentioned, so GlaxoSmithKline, I think it was, pleaded guilty to withholding safety information about uh, rosiglitazone from the US regulator, and they were fined $3 billion, which was the largest uh, healthcare fraud settlement in history. So clearly they knew about this and it was proven in a court of law. They did long yeah. before it happened and sought to actively suppress that. And I think with uh, Vioxx, Merck was fined almost a billion, um, and, and that was for making false or misleading statements about the drug's heart safety to increase sales. So, you know, and, and a lot of these things are documented. There's a great website called ProPublica, ProPublica, um, where they document a lot of these awful things pharmaceutical companies have done. Do, do you think that the new system or these days that um, 
those sorts of issues still exist or has the system been repaired as much as you can? Uh, um, I think the answer is yes, they still exist. No, it hasn't been repaired. And I think it's, it's, not, it's a moving target. So I think it's, uh, it requires regulators and individual sceptics and, and boards and things to be perpetually on their toes because there's always a huge push towards getting away with more. And unless you have a, an equally huge push towards trying to stop that, I think it, it naturally does get away with more. So there, there's examples of companies where, you know, when they're signing off an enormous, I think it was uh, Gabba Penton and then pre-Gabalin. So both are made by the same company. And at the same time as the company was uh, signing the enormous damages for Gabba Penton, but that misled the public and withheld information. So their lawyer, this is about five years later, the lawyers were signing off that. And at the same time, they were doing exactly the same thing with their next drug, which is Gabba Penton, uh, pre-Gabalin, sorry. And that came to light another five years later. And they looked back at the day and the same, you know, it was happening literally in, at, at exactly the same time in different arms of the country, that company. So, yeah, I think really if we don't keep trying to push these things, uh, then the forces will overwhelm and the market forces will prevail. Yeah. Look, Justin, thank you so much for your time today and thank you for all of your insights. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to catching up at GPA. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. 